So, evening, everybody. Thanks for being here. I want to uh, continue uh, with thinking about Emily Dickinson, and uh, as I was saying last week, I think um, she's really one of our Buddhist ancestors, right? Someone has that. Yeah, there's some yeah, echo. I do. Can you turn that off? Turn it, turn off. it off. Yeah. Okay. Okay, is that better? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because when, as I was saying last time, when, they, when you read a history of uh, Buddhism in America, it'll, it'll all, always start with Thoreau and Emerson. And uh, I don't know necessarily whether they'll mention Emily Dickinson, but Emily Dickinson is, in my opinion, more important than, than the others. Uh, because she uh, is an incredibly um, astute and flexible uh, religious person who doesn't practice religion conventionally and doesn't practice religion based on um, you know belief systems or catechisms she practices observing inside what's going on with questions of life and death which is exactly our practice right uh, even though we have a literature and so on that we that we pay attention to we're always looking at our own experience, looking at what's really happening. And, and she was a, a real master of that and saw, I think, things about being human that very few people saw and was able to express them in her poems. So I, I think I told you last time about um, this book, Susan Howe, My Emily Dickinson, and about how the book proposes to be uh, a commentary to this one poem, My Life Had Stood a Loaded Gun, and I think I also mentioned last time about uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who was the one person that Emily Dickin in, in the literary world that Emily Dickinson reached out to. So I'm going to just read a few pages from um, Susan Howe's book uh, about her, uh, which includes a letter from Emily Dickinson to Higginson, which gives you a different sort of view of Emily, Emily her, her letter writing, and how she related to this person. Um, and then a few poems of hers I'll read and comment on lightly, and then, and then we can uh, be in groups to talk about some poems. So this is the voice of Susan Howe talking about, uh, she's talking about uh, Higginson. During the 1860s, to a life standing in corners, and remember this refers to her poem, My Life Had Stood a Loaded Gun in Corners, till a day the owner passed and identified and carried me away. So this gives you the impression of a, of a powerful life not really being engaged, a life full of passion that might even be destructive because it's a loaded gun, which is quite an image. And then all of a sudden, someone identifies her gives her agency, and she then is carried away. Anyway, during the 1860s, to a life standing in corners, uh, and by the way, the poem, the Loaded Gun poem, was written in 1863, and she's born in 1830, so she's 33. 
During the 1860s, to a life standing in corners, to intellectually ambitious women, to blacks struggling for liberation, this influential and busy, busy public speaker and man of letters, Higginson, offered time, encouragement, and generous interest. But the same lack of imaginative intensity, that's a great phrase, imaginative intensity, which is something that Emily Dickinson had <laughs> to the max, but the same lack of imaginative intensity that blinded him to the metaphysical desolation stalking the browning of child Roland. So that refers to her discussion of a particular browning poem that she thinks that Emily Dickinson was aware of. That's, you don't need to know that particularly. But anyway, he was blind to that poem is the point. Caused him to actively dislike all of Melville's writing and led him to say in a review of Whitman's second edition of Leaves of Grass, and this is a quote from Higginson, it is nause its nauseating quality remains in full force. So he found Walt Whitman to be nauseating, and he completely didn't get Melville. And both Whitman and Melville and Dickinson are the great American religious writers, right? He didn't, he didn't get any of it. it uh, so his... This lack of imaginative intensity made him deaf to the rebellion, this act of lonely daring in the poetry of Emily Dickinson. In his early days, Higginson, rebel indeed he was, but he was a man of action, not of hesitation and skepticism. As a man of action, his overriding and enthusiastic optimism made him a kind and generous person. At the point in time when Dickinson first wrote to him, he was in his prime. A Unitarian minister who had once been fired by his congregation for political activity, a rebellious agitator for the causes of women's rights and abolition, an outspoken advocate of human freedom who pra practiced what he preached. So he was a really an admirable guy, you know, with powerful uh, activism and political opinions that we would find like really admirable to, today. Uh, but he was a man of action, and Emily Dickinson was a person of contemplation. So he didn't, and so were Whitman and and um, Melville. So he didn't get it. He answered Dickinson's letter at once. So here's this unknown person reaching out to him. What a great guy, you know, he answered her right away. And as I told you, uh, he left his whole life to join the Civil War at the head of a regiment of all black soldiers. He was a white leader of this regiment. Uh, and, when, and, and Emily Dickinson read about this in the paper. And she wrote him the following letter when she read that he had gone away to lead this regiment. Of course, maybe never to come back, right? Because a lot of people died in the Civil War. So she writes to him, and, and this shows you what an amazing, this is an amazing document, this letter, I think. Dear friend, I did not deem the planetary forces annulled, but suffered an exchange of territory or world. That refers to him suddenly leaving, 
right, in going off to lead this regiment. I should have liked to see you before you became improbable. Is that great or what? <laughs> I should have liked to see you before you, you became improbable. War feels to me an oblique place. Should there be other summers, would you perhaps come? Should there be other summers, would you perhaps come? I found you were gone by accident. I read it in the paper. As I find systems are, or seasons of the year, and obtain no cause, but suppose it a treason of progress that dissolves as it goes. That's her comment on him. He was really important to her life, and now he's disappeared from her life, and she doesn't even hear about it except that she reads it in the paper. And that's just how the seasons go and how time goes. That's how progress dissolves as it goes along. Time dissolves as it goes along. Carlo, her dog, <laughs> she doesn't say it's her dog, but she says, Carlo still remained. And I told him these two lines of poem, of a poem. Best gains must have the losses test to constitute them gains. My shaggy ally assented. Perhaps death gave me awe for friends, striking sharp and early, for I held them since in a brittle love of more alarm than peace. So, wow. Yeah, she's writing a letter to Higginson, right? She says that in a letter. Yeah. It's all, you know, I mean, when you have, as we all have, right, close friends who have died, uh, you're, you hold everybody else in, you know, a, more, a different kind of love, which includes in it the, the, the certain knowledge that you might not have had years before that we're not always going to be here for one another. That's what she's saying. I trust you may pass the limit of war. And though not reared to prayer, when service is had in church for our arms, I include yourself. This is a wonderful way of saying, I hope you survive the war. I hope you pass the limit of war. And even though I don't really go to church, uh, and I'm not a prayer person, uh, I will go to church, and when they have a prayer for our country, I'll include you. Then she, I'll skip a few sentences here that refer to things, apparently, he said to her in his, a previous meeting or something, or letter, and then to this. I was thinking today, as I noticed, that the supernatural, in quotes, meaning, you know, God or heaven or something, I, I, I was thinking today, as I noticed, as I noticed, that the supernatural was only the natural disclosed. And that really, that in one sentence is really, I think, our practice, right? It's right here. Isn't that the same as just this? Is it? Right? It's, right, it's just right here. But this right here, this what's here, is not just simply what's here. It is beyond what's here. I noticed that the supernatural was only the natural disclosed. And then she includes these two lines, poetic lines. Not revelation, in quotes, not revelation, tis that waits, 
but our unfurnished eyes, not revelation tis that waits, but our unfurnished eyes. We're not looking for somebody from outside to come and show us the supernatural. We just need to open our eyes and train our eyes to see. She then says, but I fear I detain you. Should you, before this reaches you, experience immortality. <laughs> so, I mean, imagine saying to a friend who's going off to war or maybe lying on, on their deathbed, and if you should perish you know, be before you get this letter, who will inform me of the exchange? So she's writing this letter knowing he may never read it. And she may never know, right? Whether she reads it, he reads it or not. Could you with honor avoid death? I entreat you, sir. It would be Reeve. Your gnome. G-N-O-M-E, your gnome. She signs it. So now that this is Susan Howe again. When she fired off this eloquent and bitterly ironic letter, a terse cry of paralysis from a northern woman's consciousness in wartime, left with her dog, her parents, children and other women, left with information indirectly supplied by newspapers and her own improbable position in a hieratic patriarchal system, left with these things, an overweening ambition, she enclosed the poem. So. I think that's right. You know, she, was, she reached out to Higginson, and you, you can see by the tone of this letter that she's not relating to Higginson as if he was an important person and she was like a mere woman in a, in a, in a bedroom writing this letter. She writes this letter as a person who has a tremendous sense of her own worth and her own, uh, what she's do, uh, the importance of what she's doing. Here's the poem she enclosed. The soul unto itself is an imperial friend or the most agonizing spy an enemy could send. Secure against its own, no treason it can fear, itself, its sovereign, of itself. The soul should stand in awe. So that's, you know, each, that's, you know, true nature, right? Each one of us. We, we betray ourselves, right? We're, we're <laughs> who's our own worst enemy? Ourselves. And at the same time, ourself is uh, sovereign of itself. Awesome. Amazing, I think, all, all the things she says. Um, Then, uh, the last little bit, I'll quote, I'll finish here. Um, Susan Howe refers to the last, uh, line, last verse of the poem, which I'll, I'll read one more time, just without comment. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till the day the owner passed, identified, and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe and every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. And do I smile 
such cordial light upon the valley glow, it is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasures through. And when at night, our good day done, I guard my master's head. Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. To foe of his, I'm deadly foe. None stir the second time on whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I, for I have but the power to kill without the power to die. And uh, here Susan Howe quotes that last stanza and says, from the first word to the last, my life, the poem, my life, that's to the loaded gun, my life, my art, my power dies into rhymed order, meaning the words of the poem. And as I said last time, I think, I know from writing poems myself that you are not translating into the poem what you already have thought. It's the poem that elicits the thought that you discover. So all of it dies into the rhymed order of the poem. Rhyme and meaning are one. Death completes my life and makes it mine. That's Susan Howe commenting on that poem. Death completes my life and makes it mine. Master is still sleeping, gun still soliloquizing, self will fight transformation, hold fast alert, unresting. Like victory, justice, words, my mind must be ready to change sides. And then she quotes uh, one line from a letter of Emily Dickinson. Life is death we're lengthy at. Death, the hinge to life. Life is death we're lengthy at. Death, the hinge to life. And I think that all you know, mystics and all religious people are always contemplating death and noticing how death is always present in life, in time. So this line, death completes my life and makes it mine, which I think Susan Howe is you know, a poet, probably the equal of Emily Dickinson, actually. She's one of our greatest living poets. And uh, so I, I think that's exactly a good take on Emily Dickinson and on this poem. And it reminded me of something in, in this book of mine, Escape This Crazy Life of Tears, uh, which is a record, a poetic kind of diary of a trip that some of us took. You were there, I think, Alan, weren't you, in 2010 in Japan? Yeah. So you will remember that when we were in Japan, we went to Eheji, and we, we had a Dharma talk by Hoitsu Roshi. Uh, informal. Y you were there too? Yeah, informal, yeah, informal. And it was the most, uh, the most amazing Dharma talk I've ever heard in my life, by far. And he just was rambling, you know, and I, and I wrote down uh, some of the things he said in this, in this poem. Hojo-san, east, west, a person of Zazen is the same 
grandmother mind, the kind heart, is imagination. Feeling for another, see them as yourself, takes imagination. Imagination expands the heart. One day woke, heard sound in both ears, sudden hearing loss. My eyes don't work right either. Age is slowly melting my body. With each loss, there's gain. My ears, my eyes, more mine now than ever, before not. So, when I lose my life to death, will my life be owned by me more then than it ever was? And I remember being so impressed by all of that. And you wonder where I got the idea of practice as imagination, right? He's saying here, compassion is an act of imagination. All of Buddha Dharma, in the end, and all of religion is an act of imagination. So he said that. I th I th I'll never, never forget that. And, and I couldn't because it's written down in the book, so I will never forget it. Okay, so I just want to thank you. I just want to read uh, a few poems. And, and these are poems that uh, are in a small tranche of poems that I'm going to suggest that we uh, possibly um, talk about in the groups. You can select from these poems. Or anyone, really, but these are some I'm suggesting and I'd like to read for you now before I stop. This one is uh, in the Franklin edition, number 320, uh, and in the uh, Johnson edition, number 258. There's a certain slant of light winter afternoons that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. So winter light, you know, is really, you know, the light, of course, the different times of year is quite different, right? So winter light is a very particular kind of light, especially where she lives in the, in the northeastern part of the United States. That oppresses, but not uh, in the ordinary sense of oppression, like the heft of cathedral tunes. So it's not, you know, it's not painful. It's serious. There's a certain slant of light winter afternoons that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar. But internal difference where the meanings are. Internal difference. This makes me think of uh, what I often feel that um, religious experience, practice experience, I often use the word vague. And for me, you know, I'm living in the fog all the time, right? So I think of fog as being like, you know, life is like a fog. The real stuff is in, imprecise, you know. The world can be quite precise, but inner, inner life can be imprecise. These internal differences are hard to pin down. For most people, they don't even exist because they're busy. 
so they couldn't notice them. But for, for someone who has a contemplative life and doing zazen, you do notice. Heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it. You know, teachers of Zen, right? None may teach it. Any. Tis the seal, despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. So, and here again, despair, which we may think of as a negative, something really negative to be avoided at all costs, that would be clinical depression, you should get medicated if you have despair. She, she welcomes despair, as do all mystics and religious people. You know, it's part of the, part of the package, right, of being a human being, as you, you might feel that from time to time. And that is an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens. The whole world feels it. Don't you feel that way when you're really, really in a dark place? You look out and the whole world is in that same place. Shadows hold their breath. And when it goes, it's like the distance on the look of death. Wonderful, right? Amazing. Who, who writes stuff like that? Whoever would think of that? This is uh, 372 or 341. This is one of my favorite lines of Emily Dickinson. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. And I think for those of us who practice Zen in, in Zendos wearing robes, we, we appreciate a formal feeling, right? We know, we know what that feels like. A sashin is a, is a kind of a formal feeling. After great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. The stiff heart questions. And this is in quotes. The stiff heart questions, was it he that bore? And, quote, yesterday or centuries before. In other words, after enormous pain, you have this feeling and you think to yourself, what just happened? Did anything happen? When? What? It's, you're disoriented. The feet, mechanical, go round a wooden way or of ground or air or ought, regardless groan, a quartz contentment like a stone. This is the hour of lead, remembered if outlived, as freezing persons recollect the snow, first chill, then stupor, then the letting go. Beautiful poem about darkness. Uh, here it says that uh, there are two dates on the bottom of each poem. One is the date that they suppose she wrote the poem because she didn't date them. That's on the left. And on the right is the date that the poem was first published. This po poem was first published in 1929. Can you imagine? 1929. I guess uh, either it was lost or 
people didn't want anybody to think that Emily Dickinson was depressed or something. I think her, the publication of her poems was, of course, in the hands of her family. So, you know, they were interested in, and differently interested as the generations went on in, in shaping her legacy and how people would remember her. 935 or 1540. As imperceptibly as grief, the summer lapsed away. Just like grief, you know, which is, takes so long to overcome, much longer than people think. We give you 90 days off from work, and then you'll be fine. <laughs> no. As imperceptibly as grief, the summer lapsed away. Too imperceptible at last to seem like perfidy. It's a great off-rhyme, away and perfidy. Perfidy meaning like treachery. It's the summer snuck away like a treacherous person, like, you know, leaving sneakily. <laughs> a quietness distilled as twilight long begun. Or nature spending with herself sequestered afternoon. The dusk drew earlier in, the morning foreign shone. A courteous yet harrowing grace as guest that would be gone. So the morning dawns, and it seems foreign. I think the poem is really um, a poem about the process of grieving. The whole world looks foreign, right? Especially morning. Night is more, you know, makes more sense, right? But morning, foreign shown, a courteous yet harrowing grace, another day to live in my grief, like a guest that would be gone. And thus, and this last part is fabulous, and thus, without a wing or service of a keel, our summer made her light escape into the beautiful. So that rhymes with keel, right? Beautiful. Is that great or what? And, and that line uh, is a short line. It doesn't have enough syllables in it, which makes it stand out, right? And so in the end, it's a poem about grief, but in the end, it's a poem about beauty. Grief brings beauty. Could you repeat that last two lines? I'll go back a little further. And thus, without a wing or service of a keel, in other words, without wings to fly or a keel that a ship has to sail away, without a wing or service of a keel, our summer made her light escape into the beautiful. So that's how time passes. That's how grief passes. That's how the seasons melt one into the other. That's how the day disappears every day. Without wing or keel, it disappears into the beautiful.
This is 11.08 or 10.78. Uh, and thank you to uh, our host for uh, screen sharing these. Thank you. The bustle in a house, the morning after death, when there are arrangements to be made, right? So you forget about the loss because, or for a moment, a little bit, because you're, you have to think about the funeral arrangements and when is the guy coming from the undertakers and so on and so on. The bustle in a house the morning after death is solemnest of industries enacted upon earth. The sweeping up the heart because you're bustling, right? You're sweeping up. The sweeping up the heart and putting love away, we shall not want to use again until eternity. Which rhymes with away. <laughs> Fabulous. The sweep, you, you can't write this like this anymore. It's not possible. You can't do it. The sweeping up the heart, I, I've tried, I'm telling you, <laughs> you can't do it. Maybe somebody could do it. The sweeping up the heart and putting love away, we shall not want to use again until eternity. So we hope, of course, that the person in the poem who might have experienced the death does still love, but there's some kind of love that is put away until eternity. And the last one. Short also, 1263, 1129. This is also a very famous line of Emily Dickinson's that I think of all the time. It's a kind of a, uh, it's a kind of an advice on how to write poems. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Famous line, you probably know that. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, being circuitous. Don't, don't, you, you can't tell the truth straightforwardly, not because you're hiding it, but because it won't be the truth. To tell, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. The truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children, eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Right? So it should be told slant circuitously because it's too dazzling. It'll blind us if we try to tell it directly. And uh, I'll just close with a short poem of uh, that just I just happened to notice the other day because it was his birthday. Um, Robert Creeley. Hmm. This device seems to be not working. Well, I won't read the Robert Creeley poem. But anyway, Robert Creeley is a uh, sort of a. Uh, successor, in a way, to Emily Dickinson, because he's also a New England person. And I know that he read Emily Dickinson and read, you know, deeply and writes in the same sort of terse uh, way that she does. Maybe I can find it on this other device. Yes. 
So this is a short poem of Creeley's. You know, you can hear, uh, you can hear the similarity and the sensibility, but what's lacking in Creeley's poem is the kind of torqued um, sensibility, religious sensibility that you find in Dickinson, the sense of paradox and sense of depth. So here's the Creeley poem, which I think is a wonderful poem. The honor of being human will stay constant. The earth, earth, water, wet, sun, shine. The world will be as ever round and all yourselves will know it, on it, and around, and around. No one knows what will happen. That is the happiness of the circle, finding you. It's a wonderful poem, isn't it? He's also one of our great, great American poets, now no longer with us. Okay, so I guess everybody has uh, access to the poems. Folks online do, and you can have mine, Alan. So uh, let's get in. I think there's how many? Six of us here in the room, seven counting me. Why don't we just divide in half, groups of three? And online, we can also be in groups of three. Okay, and, and we'll, uh, how much time have we got? We have like uh, quite a bit of time. How about we take um, 25 minutes? to do this, and then we can uh, discuss all together. Okay? You so. Okay, each group pick three? Yeah, yeah, I think, well, just start with one and then see how, you know, see how far you get. Uh, so I'm, I'm suggesting you can look at those poems that I just read, because uh, I kind of gave you a, a little starter key, but you can use any poem that you like. And just, you know, read one as long as it takes, and then go on to another one if you have time, and just for fun. And then in about 25 minutes, uh, we'll come back.